0: Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that you are wonderful. We know that you are magnificent. And Lord, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us. And we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in your word and that your word continues to be relevant and applicable to us today. Father, I pray as we dig into your word that you will use your word to impact us, to impact our lives, to help us to be more like you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, we're continuing in our sermon series of uh, Jesus' mission continues, looking at disciple making in the early church to figure out what lessons we can learn to apply to our vision of worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we've been in, in this sermon series now for just over a year, um, and we're in chapter 18 of Acts. Um, and this is, uh, we're going to be verses 18 to 28 this morning. And I'm titling this sermon Oscar Mike. Um, you may know that term. You may not. Uh, Oscar Mike is, from what I understand, it's a military term that's used a lot um, to reference the letters O and M. The so the military phonetic alpha, or the NATO phonetic alphabet uh, for O and M. It's Oscar Mike, um, and that would be used to uh, refer to a unit that is on the move or on mission. Um, and so we see this morning three ways that disciples are Oscar Mike, and that goes for both on the move and on mission. Uh, so. Uh, disciples are on mission everywhere they go. Um, disciples need rest to stay on mission. So a disciple cannot always be Oscar Mike. And a disciple needs mission support to stay on mission. So when we're on mission, we need some extra leadership or some extra help sometimes. Uh, we'll go ahead and get right into the, the text, uh, starting in verse 18. It says, after staying for some time, Paul said farewell to the brothers and sisters and sailed away to Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. He shaved his head at Sincre because of a vow he had taken. When they reached Ephesus, he left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and debated with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he declined. But he said farewell and added, I'll come back to you again if God wills. He set sail from Ephesus. So I said Paul said farewell to the brothers and sisters and sailed away to Syria. So we know that Paul had been in Corinth for about, well, at least a year and a half. That's the only time reference that we get, and it's kind of in the middle of Paul's stay at at Corinth. Luke says that he had been there for a year and a half, so there may have been some time before that that Luke's not including, or there may have been some time after that that Luke is not including, but we know he was there for at least 18 months, Um, and he was there. He had planted a church. He had seen some success in growing God's kingdom, Um, but we also read last week that he was apprehended, um, kind of a citizen's arrest, and taken in front of the proconsul, and accused of teaching things that were against Roman or against Jewish law. Well, since they were against Jewish law, the Roman proconsul said, basically, this is none of my business. It's nothing I have to worry about. Um, and instead of Paul getting in trouble, it was actually uh, the man who accused him who ended up being beaten. And, but now Paul is leaving Corinth and continuing on his journey. As we read through the second half of Acts, one thing that we notice is that Paul doesn't stay in one place for too long. He's always on the move. He's always going somewhere. He travels frequently. And as he goes, he always shares the gospel. And as he goes into these different towns, a lot of times he's planting churches. But he is always sharing the gospel as he's going. He is always on mission when he's going. So as his journey continues, often he will come back to visit those churches that he planted. Uh, and he will teach them and encourage them and ask them for support. Now, on a quick side note here, it says that he shaved his head. To be completely honest with you, this detail seems quite odd for Luke to include in here. You know, why in the world would he shave his head? Well, Luke doesn't tell us exactly why, other than it's because of a vow he had taken. Um, So, the best that I can tell, Paul may have taken a Nazarite vow. Now, there are two types of Nazarites. There's the Nazarite who is from birth. The most known example of that would be Samson in the Old Testament in Judges. Uh, he was a Nazarite from birth. But there are also other Nazarites. There were temporary Nazarites. Um, and so, uh, this title, please don't confuse this title with a Nazarene. So you have a Nazarite is somebody who had taken a vow. And Nazarene is somebody who is from the city of Nazareth. Whoa. Uh, so... Um, Paul may have taken a Nazarite vow, um, and so that vow is outlined in Numbers chapter 6. I'm not going to go into all the detail on it, but basically the person taking the Nazarite vow was to abstain from certain things, um, basically anything from the grapevine, because they were abstaining from wine, and that extended to anything from the grapevine, even the skin or the flesh of the the grape, Um, and they were to abstain from cutting their hair. And a lot of times at the beginning of the Nazarite vow, they would shave their head. And then at the end of the Nazarite vow, they would shave their head. Now, this time between the beginning and the end was supposed to be a time that they were dedicating their life specifically to God's ministry, whether it's in the Old Testament being God's messenger or in some other way of being specifically engaged in God's ministry. Or, you know, in the, in the New Testament, we see people being um, kind of uh, confirmed into ministry, that type of thing. Um, but the Nazarite vow, is, it's not something that typically carries over into the New Testament. Um, so I don't know if that's really what he's doing here, but that's my best guess. Yes. Kind of like a fast. Yeah. Uh, so what does this mean for us in the context of this story? I don't know. But it was, it was an odd enough detail. <laughs> I, I don't know. But it was an odd enough detail that if I skipped over it, somebody would have said, wait, no, he skipped over that. And why, why is he skipping over that? So, I couldn't just skip it, right? But I don't know how that applies to us, all right? Uh, The next part, it says that he entered the synagogue and he debated with the Jews. So, as I said earlier, as Paul is going, he's always on mission. He's always Oscar Mike and he's always on mission. So, whenever he goes into the city, he is both on move because he's going to different cities, but he's also on mission while he's in that city because he's in that city to proclaim the gospel. He is there to share the good news of Jesus's life. So he would go about and he would share the gospel and he would debate with non-believers and he would build relationships and encourage the believers that were already there. So Paul's mission Paul's mission was growing the kingdom of God. When Paul was on mission, we could summarize it by going and looking at the great commission. And the great commission we find it in Matthew 28 verses 19 and 20. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So the verb here, go, the verb could be better translated as, as you are going. So Jesus is telling his disciples to make disciples as they are living their lives. Jesus is telling his disciples to make disciples in their everyday lives. This is not a call to go on mission. It is more a call to be on mission. So a lot of times when we read go therefore and make disciples, we think the main verb there is go, but it's not. The main verb in this sentence is make disciples. Everything else goes back to that verb. The going goes back to making disciples. So we are making disciples as we are going. The teaching and baptizing, those all go back to making disciples as well. The main verb is to make disciples. We do that by teaching. We do that by baptizing. Right. And so when I say that Paul lived the Great Commission, I'm not saying that because he traveled to city after city after city. I'm not saying that he was living out the Great Commission because he was always going somewhere. I'm saying that he lived out the Great Commission because as he was going, he was making disciples. As he was going, he was sharing the gospel. He was sharing Jesus' good news as he went all over the place. And then he says, I'll come back to you again if God wills. So the most important detail in this sentence, I think, is in the, the, the last three words, if God wills. See, Paul was totally surrendered to Jesus' lordship. But honestly, when we think of the term lordship, or the term lord, it seems odd to have anything other than total surrender. How could you claim that someone is your lord if you are not completely and totally surrendered to them? See, that's the type of surrender that Jesus calls us to. Total devotion. Our sinful self wants to take Jesus' promises without his call to lordship. We want to take the salvation without the call to pick up your cross. We want to take the fire insurance without being a disciple. We want to say we're a Christian without allowing the Holy Spirit to change us. And see, when we talk about what makes a disciple, when we talk about our, our, um, our disciple definition, I have three identifiers, right? Um, and the third one, I'm sorry, the first one is to... Follow Jesus, follow him. And so we are to accept his lordship with complete and total devotion. Another place we see this call is in Luke nine twenty three. I'm sorry, I don't have that passage up there. In Luke nine twenty three, uh, it says, Then Jesus said to them all, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So in this verse, that phrase to follow after me, it carries the same intensity as a romantic pursuit of someone or a a relentless uh, going after them. So it is. it carries that same weightiness or that same urgency of a romantic pursuit. So what he's saying is that we deny our own desires and we accept the hard parts of being a disciple. That's when Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. We accept the hard parts of being a disciple, and that comes along with Being uh, accepting the lordship of Jesus. We don't like that sometimes. We want to take all the good stuff from the Bible and leave out all the hard stuff. But being a disciple is a call to sacrifice. It's a call to sacrificing myself and my desires so that I can be more in line with God's will for my life. Because we know that God's will for our life is better than our will for our life. The way I like to say it is that I love me and I want what's best for me and I think I know how to get there. But God loves me more than I love me and he wants what's best for me more than I want what's best for me and he knows how to do it better than I do. So I should surrender to him, even if that means things are going to be hard sometimes, even if that means being on mission everywhere I go. So if we keep reading, It says, on landing at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church, then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he set out, traveling through one place after another in the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now that highlight shouldn't be there yet. It should be, Yep. first one we should see is he went up to Jerusalem. So now when we look at a map, all right, so let me give you some context. When we look at a map, when we think going up somewhere, in our context, we think of going north, because when we look at a map, we have south is on the bottom and north is on the top. But when we look at a map of this area, Jerusalem is south of Caesarea. Uh, So why would Luke describe it as going up? Well, there's two reasons for this. The, The main reason they would describe this as going up to Jerusalem is because geographically, Jerusalem is in the mountains and Caesarea is on the coast. So it would be some, it would be similar to someone saying they're going up from Wilmington to Boone, as they're going from the coast up the mountains to Boone. So that's, that's kind of what they're referencing here. They're going up in elevation from the coast up into the mountains. Jerusalem was in the mountains. A second way, or a second reason that Luke may have described this as going up to Jerusalem was because of the, the high status that Jerusalem carried in being the home of the temple. The temple was in Jerusalem, so it had a higher status than, or at least in the Jewish mindset, that uh, Jerusalem had a higher status than many of the other cities because that's where God's temple was. So when he says that he's going up to Jerusalem, that's why he says that. But why would he go to Jerusalem to begin with? Well, we're not told exactly why he would go there, but I think we can we can reason two reasons as to why. We can come up with two reasons why. One would be, or a possibility, would be that Nazarite vow that he may have taken earlier when he shaved his head, typically a Nazarite vow would have ended with a sacrifice in Jerusalem. All right. After they were done with their that vow, they would go up to Jerusalem and make a sacrifice. Now, this seems a little less likely than the other possibility because Paul's faith is in Jesus. Paul knows that Jesus's sacrifice paid. For all of his sins. Jesus' sacrifice restored the relationship that we broke because of our sins. And so there were two sacrifices that were made at the end of a Nazarite vow. The first sacrifice was to atone for sins. And the second sacrifice was a sacrifice of fellowship, you know, uh, uh signifying the relationship being restored between that person and God. So Why in the world would Paul need to go to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice if his faith is in Jesus and he knows that Jesus went to the cross and sacrificed himself to pay the penalty for Paul's sins? Or why would he go to make a sacrifice, a, a, a fellowship sacrifice, to signify his relationship with God being restored if Jesus has already done that? So the second and more likely reason that I think Paul would have went to Jerusalem is because that's where the church started. That was where the Christian church started. It was in Jerusalem, and it was almost like the headquarters of the church. We also know there were several times on Paul's journeys that he would collect funds, he would collect money from the different churches that he would go to, he would collect money and bring them back to Jerusalem. Because after the church started, and then Christianity spread, then there was a big famine that hit in Judea, and the church in Jerusalem struggled financially, they struggled with food. And so Paul, as he was going around, he would raise support for the church back there in Jerusalem to help them out because they were struggling. But in any case, we know that Paul went to Jerusalem. And while he was there, knowing Paul, he probably did what Paul does. And that was spreading the gospel, growing the kingdom, making disciples as he was there. Because this is what Paul does. Not only is he on the move, he is also on mission. So Paul is Oscar Mike. Then it says he went down to Antioch. Oh, my! all my highlights are weird. And it says, then he went down to Antioch. So, earlier it said that Paul went up to Jerusalem, and now it's saying he's going down to Antioch. The same thing. Antioch is north of Jerusalem, but it is lower in elevation. So that's why we think Luke is saying, and he's using the term down to Antioch. Um, but He's going to Antioch, and this is almost like uh, Paul's sending church. This is where Paul would start each of his missionary journeys, and it's where he would finish each of his missionary journeys. So with Paul coming to Antioch now, this is the end of his second missionary journey. And look, when he gets there, look at all the fanfare and and the big party and, and all the big news that it is that Paul's back. Oh, wait, there's not none. There's not any. There's no fanfare recorded for Paul's return. It's almost like he just came in to rest and regroup. Well, I think that's exactly what he's doing. He's coming back in to rest and regroup. See, this points to a major part of the gospel that gets forgotten in our capitalist mindset, in our capitalist culture. Now, I don't think capitalism is wrong. I actually think when we look economically, I think uh, capitalism is a good thing. However, capitalism cannot be our idol. So the the mindset be, between, behind capitalism is what feeds our American dream that if you work hard, you're going to be rewarded. If you work hard to make some product and you sell your product at a fair price, then you will be rewarded for that, and that your business will grow, or you'll you'll be rewarded for your efforts by your your boss. That's not a bad thing, but what we see the way it, where it leads to. <clears throat> When we look at a lot of our uh, the, the major companies nowadays, it's le- led to money being our idol. Now, I'm not saying that's the only reason money is an idol for people, because that was a struggle that people have dealt with, I think, since we had a, a need for money, but it, it definitely feeds into that. But let me explain how, <clears throat> let me best explain how Paul's rest here at uh, Antioch fits in with the gospel. So, You've seen, there we go, you've seen this picture that I use for the gospel. This is the three circles uh, that, uh, uh, sorry, the three circles gospel conversation tool. And it starts in God's design because God created the universe. God created everything that, uh, that, that exists. In a moment, he created the universe. And, it, and when we read scripture, it says that he created the universe to be in perfect relationship with humans and for us to be in perfect relationship with each other and for all of creation to be in perfect relationship within itself and with him but another part that we don't talk about a whole lot is in genesis 2 2 to 3 it says on the seventh day god had completed his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done god blessed the seventh day and declared it holy for on it he rested from all of uh, from all of his work of creation. Now, was God tired? No, God wasn't tired. Was he, was he too worn out to do any more work on that seventh day? No, he wasn't. He was setting a precedent for us to follow, to rest. We see that commanded to us in Exodus <clears throat> chapter 20. says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work. But on the seventh day, I'm sorry, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, you must not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. So that rest, that's part of God's design. Resting in the Lord, having that Sabbath is part of God's design for our lives. It's part of God's design for all of creation. So why don't we do that? Why do we skip over that rest sometimes? Well, it's because of our sin. Our sin is anytime we're not doing God's will. Now, that could be not taking the Sabbath. So that would be not doing something that God has commanded us to do. Sometimes sin is doing things that God has commanded us not to do, or it could be having sinful thoughts like lust or envy. And that leads us to brokenness. And in that brokenness, a lot of times we continue that same sin. We're talking specifically here about resting. We're talking about having a Sabbath. So if we continue to skip our Sabbath, we're continuing to sin and we're continuing to push ourselves farther away from God's design. When we look at our culture and we look at the the world around us and there's always work to be done. Yes, there is always work to be done. And because of that, we have to take a rest. We have to stop and take a rest. We have to Allow time to rest in God. Now, this is not just to sit at home and be lazy, but it's time to focus on your relationship with God and allow Him to, to recreate you from the inside out. To allow Him to recreate you by realigning your heart with Him and His Word. To focus on your relationship with God. Now, there are different ways to have that Sabbath. And in this, uh, in Exodus, it's commanded that we, we don't work. Now, That has been taken and I think applied wrongly a lot in our culture when it's telling us not to work on the Sabbath day. Um, I plan on, I don't know if I'm actually going to do this because I'm still pretty wore out from yesterday, but I plan on, after we go to lunch, I plan on going home and mowing my yard. And a lot of people would say, well, you're not supposed to work on Sunday because Sunday's the Sabbath. Well, well, first of all, I, I don't think, well, Sunday doesn't necessarily mean the Sabbath. But also in my in in both of my jobs, they're both very mental jobs. Things that that are mentally straining, and I have to do a lot of sitting and, and uh, just mental exercise. Now I do, you know, I get up and I walk a lot while I'm teaching. But it's still a very it's a very mental job. Sometimes I feel like I'm going mental, but no, uh, <laughs> they're mentally straining jobs. And so to get out and to do some physical labor, I, it, it is a way for me to be restful for my mind. It's a way for God to recreate me and allow me to come more in line with his will, to come more in line with his, uh, To, or sorry, time for me to focus on our relationship. And so sometimes that work that we see, it, it, it can be different for different people. Sabbath can be different for different people. I'm not saying Sabbath has to be on a Sunday. Maybe your job requires that you work certain different days. And if you have to work on a Sunday for your job, I think it's important to take and find some time throughout the week to focus on your relationship with God and allowing Him to recreate you. I keep using that term, recreate. Now, if you look at the spelling, I have it spelled hyphenated, so re-create. hyphen Now, if you take that hyphen out, you have recreate or recreation. I think that's a good way for us to look at this. What do we do for recreation? And are we allowing our recreational activities to glorify God? All right. So I do think that this is important for us to see that Paul comes back to Antioch and we can learn an important lesson for this. We need to be intentional about being on mission wherever we go, but we cannot always be on the move. We have to stop. We have to rest. And in our context, I think that's one of the most overlooked commands in Scripture. I've said that several times now. To stop and rest. God commands us to have a Sabbath. This is a time of resting in the Lord and allowing Him to recreate us into His workmanship. But we have to make sure we don't allow that rest to be too long because then it turns into laziness. The purpose of our rest is to to reorient our lives with God and to help us to be better disciples, to help us to be uh, more productive when we're on mission. Well, I don't think that's a purpose. That's that's a side effect. The purpose is to reorient our lives with God and to focus on that relationship we have with Him. And that allows us to be more productive when we are on mission. And so we see Paul, it says that he set out traveling through one place after another. So he left Antioch and he set out sets out on his third missionary journey. Right, so this points to a detail that I alluded to earlier. As Paul goes on his missionary journeys, he often comes back to visit those churches and offer them support. He comes back to visit those churches and 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 to to help to guide them. Uh, so Paul knows the importance of keeping these relationships as he's traveling, and he knows the importance of being that uh, almost a disciple mentor, the disciple maker. As he's going, he's he's uh, he's diving into these relationships and he's building these relationships and he's helping these other disciples to become more mature disciples. It is important for us as disciples to have that leadership, to have that that Paul in our lives, somebody who can come and to give us support, who can help us to become more mature. Now, on the way over here, as we're driving over here, Hannah and I were talking, and I said, you know, I was kind of looking at my sermon, and and I could almost break this down into two different sermons, you know, and, and I couldn't decide which way God wanted me to go with this, and have this point right here be the stopping point or continue into the next portion? I said, I, I don't know. I, you know. I prayed, but I wasn't sure about it. And I said, so I guess when I get there, I'll look at the time and see what time it is. And I think we're going to go ahead and close. So I've got some slides to skip through, but we'll get to our application portion. Um, and so when we look at our application, we want to learn what lessons we can, or we want to know what lessons we can learn from this passage to fulfill our vision of worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. First, the first part of that is knowing. Know that Jesus is your Savior. Now, this is not merely a head knowledge, but something you have to know in your heart. It is a willingness to surrender to Him, to allow Him to be your Lord. It is a knowledge that comes with surrendering your life to Jesus. The being part is to be transformed by God. Allow time in your schedule for God to recreate you and reorient you to His will. Have that Sabbath time. And finally, doing. That is to share the gospel. Share the gospel. Share the gospel with others to help them grow closer to God. It might be with lost people. So you're sharing the gospel with lost people to help them grow closer to salvation. Or it could be with other disciples. You're sharing the gospel with other people who believe in the gospel to help them to become a more mature disciple. So the application, the main application here, is to be Oscar Mike, to be on mission wherever you go. Everywhere you go, take the gospel with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the example that Paul sets for us. Father, we know that we cannot on our own follow that example because he wasn't doing it on his own power. Lord, we know that to be a more mature disciple, we have to surrender to you. Lord, I pray this morning that this message will help each and every one of us to surrender more of our lives to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we've come to our point of response. You can respond where you're seated and pray, or you can come to the front and pray, or you can come and pray with me. But please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit this morning.